In this episode of the Cyberry Podcast, we sit down with Jeff Mann. Currently working as a senior information security consultant, Jeff needs no introduction to those within the hacking community. Speaking with Cyberry's head of infrastructure, Jonathan Myers, Jeff takes us from how he got started in cybersecurity to contributing to the book, Tribe of Hackers, cybersecurity advice from the best hackers in the world, on sale now. So if you kind of want to just give like a brief background of yourself. Um, I know you have a background. I can't promise how brief. Oh, that's fine. Because um, I know your your first degree was not anything related to cybersecurity, information technology, anything like that. So nope. how did how did that kind of come about, if you will? So uh, my background is uh, very much not uh, uh, technology related or computer related. Uh, I was actually a business major in college, oh. and I, that was probably my fourth major in college. <laughs> and I basically kept looking for the one where I had to do as little work as possible and, and pass. And um, I grew up in the area. I grew up in Silver Spring, and um, both of my parents worked for the government, uh, for the Department of the Navy. My dad was a physicist, and uh, uh, he actually was involved way back in the 50s in some of the early testings of the hydrogen bomb. And he actually... Uh, um, was on one of the ships that wa- watched the the detonation of the first hydrogen oh, that's bomb, crazy. which eliminated an, a little atoll called Anahuitac. You can look that up in the history books. Um, but he worked at the Naval Research Laboratory. My mom uh, was in HR uh, at the Naval, what used to be called the Naval Ordnance Laboratory, later became Naval Surface Weapons Center. And my start in all of this really was I got a, a summer job uh, between my junior and senior year of college uh, as an intern working at the Naval Surface Weapons Center. And uh, I went to work for a physicist who uh, did anti-submarine warfare research. My first day on the job, he was trying to explain what he did. And he's like, you know, the easiest thing to do would be to read this book that just came out recently. And the book was called The Hunt for Red October. <laughs> Might have heard of it. Uh, and and so I, you know, my first week on, you know, my first real job, I got to read a book, which I thought was kind of cool. But my my project for the summer as an intern was this uh, physicist had a, a, a locked cabinet you know, five, you know, five drawer filing cabinet filled with research material that he'd collected over his years, and he had gotten some money and was able to buy one of these newfangled things called a desktop computer, Whoa. and uh, got a and he, he got a database program, and he wanted me to basically go through this cabinet full of all sorts of research material, catalog it, and build some sort of rudimentary searchable. Database. I, I spent the summer going through looking at all these different documents and books and articles and research papers and trying to extract keywords. And I got to play on this PC and and learn how to uh, use this database program. I want to say it was DBase two. And um, what was the learning curve on that? Um, did you have to read like three more books to learn how to? No, I mean back in those days there weren't three more books to study <laughs> on anything. Yeah. You know the the PC itself, uh, and this is before the days of Windows. This was 1984. Uh, when you turned it on, you had the choice of booting into one of two operating systems: DOS or something called CPM. Mm-hmm. And I think in the first couple weeks, I effectively. Blew out, you know. I, I accidentally deleted basically the operating <laughs> system, so we had to start over. So the learning curve was more just 
pick and poke and trial yeah. and error and just you know figure things out. And um, part of learning the database programming was not only was I do, doing the cataloging, but I was I was uh, very much into sports at the time. The Redskins they were sort of on the upswing. They were that's back when they were good and winning Super Bowls. And so I I kept track of all the stats, which you could see in the newspaper. You got it every right. day. But I tried to translate that into learning how to do the database and learning how to you know, putting in stats for a game and then compiling it within the program so it would have the cumulative oh, yeah. you know, totals and averages and things like that. Um, but my uh, my lesson in security, and, I, and I've talked about this uh, uh, several times at, at conferences, uh, was really uh, I came in one day and I opened up the, the safe and found in the in the drawer that you opened up a, a pink sheet of paper saying, "Please come and visit the security office." Turns out I had lo- left the safe unlocked overnight, and I was a young kid in college. And I said, "Well, what's the big deal? You know, I'm in this uh, <laughs> I'm in this government facility that's got fences around the borders, and and to get into the building, you have to go past a guard desk, and and uh, to get to, into the office, it was locked." And you know, so to me, there was all these layers of security. What's the big deal if a safe is left unlocked right. inside a locked room, inside a locked building, inside a locked, you know, secured facility? Well, uh, turns out it was a big deal, and I didn't really appreciate it until many years later um, that I realized. Oh, well, when it comes to security, there's lots of moving parts, and uh, you know, any one little element. In isolation, may not seem like a big deal, but it all works together to secure, in this case, classified materials that were locked in a safe. Um, and I and I have reflected on that over the years, especially the last couple of years when I've been called upon or asked to come do talks and 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 try to explain sort of the state of cyber, what we now call cybersecurity. We didn't yeah. call it that back then. And and I think the biggest lesson that I've learned or or the thing that I've come to know or, or come to realize is that um, back then, um, security at this organization that I was working for, everybody understood the rules. Everybody knew their role, their role, and everybody followed the rules. It wasn't, you know, we were mentioning before we started broadcasting or recording. Um, you know, you guys are trying to move towards trying to explain cybersecurity to the whole organization right. rather than it's the responsibility of one little group that's kept in a corner. Back then, everybody understood security right. and everybody knew their role to play and, and what was important about following all the, the rules. A lot of it was physical security procedures. But I think the, the there's an analogy there. There's a crossover to what we call cybersecurity today. And, and I think it's something that we've lost as a society, if not as an industry, that within an organization, everybody has a role to play and everybody should not only just know to follow the rules just because, right. but because it's part of the whole. And and it shouldn't be the type of thing where security is invisible and security is something that's done by somebody else. If, you know, if I'm opening up my tablet or my laptop or my, my smart device, um, there shouldn't be the assumption that everything is secure and I can just use it in whatever way I want to. Right. I have a responsibility for what I have control over in terms yeah. of security. And and that, um, it's a little bit discouraging in some ways because I think a lot of that has been lost somewhere oh, along yes. the way. 
But uh, in ter- so that's how I got my start. Uh, I, I went back, finished my senior year of college, graduated, actually went back to the Naval, the same place, and was working uh, just as a uh, clerk typist. I, I was working for the research library at the time. Uh, but my mother happened to have a friend uh, in HR whose daughter had gotten a job at NSA. I grew up in Maryland. I'd never yeah. heard of NSA. Back in those days, yeah. it didn't exist. Yeah. Nobody said that they worked at NSA. <laughs> um, but they were hiring. And uh, so I filled out the the application form, sent it in, and got they got in touch with me. And I ended up going up uh, to Fort Meade for two or three days of testing. I took all sorts of different types of aptitude tests. Right. And the long and the short of it was I scored well, and they hired me. And they hired me uh, without any job in mind. They hired me simply because I was qualified right. or I had the aptitude for doing the things that NSA yeah, does. typical government stuff, right? They, they right. test your aptitude, and then they tell you what you're qualified for, and right. then they, they kind of right. make it work. So uh, I, I went to work at NSA, and I was there for 10 years. I started out as a cryptographer. Uh, I actually worked on what we called at, this, at the time the InfoSec side of the house, the defensive side of NSA, right. uh, which unfortunately more or less doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I was there for a couple years doing some fun things, and then – uh, eventually became an intern, a cryptanalysis intern. And uh, my f- part of the being an intern was you had diversity tours, six-month tours in different offices so you could learn all the different aspects of yep. cryptography and all the other things that NSA does. And my last tour, I ended up back on the InfoSec side of the house working for an organization that was called Fielded Systems Evaluations. And their mission was somebody had figured out, hey, the the way the NSA very often on the operations sides exploits the communications traffic of our adversaries is we take advantage of the fact that the systems that our adversaries were using uh, were being misused. People wouldn't change default settings. People would reuse keys that were only supposed (laughs) to be used for one time only or maybe for a week. Uh, or they would find bypasses to the security altogether. And somebody said, well, gee, you know, we, you know, NSA produces the best cryptographic systems in the world. We're experts at it. But how do we know that these great systems that we produce are being used properly once they're deployed in the field? Yeah. And very often they're deployed to 18, 19 year old, oh, yeah. you know, communications officers. You've been in the army. Yeah. You know the type. <laughs> yeah. I was that guy. You were that guy. <laughs> and so you, you know, your job is to get the message through and whatever shortcuts and, and yep. things you can do to make Make the job easier, you're going to do it. Especially when people are shooting at you and you're just tired at the end of a day. Like you're just, sometimes you just put it on autopilot after you're right, right. You check out and then that's where it. So I, I started in that office and finished off my intern program and ended up just staying in that office. And, and uh, there was a seminal event that happened uh, while I was in that office, which was the, the release of Mosaic, which was sort of the first commercially available free web browser. And that's what really made the internet begin to explode and made it made it accessible to the general public. So part of the office that I was in started focusing on what we called at the time network systems. How do we test the security of network systems? And there was a small group of us that um, – you know, we were aware of this whole thing called hacking and breaking into computers, and so we started to learn that. And to make a long story short, we ended up setting up what came to be known as the first red team at NSA. And in doing that, um, we had to overcome all sorts of barriers, one being the the reticence of, of NSA management, let's say, to venture into 
into the software land and into computers. You know, we we were we were accustomed to building little black boxes yep. where messages came in and code came out, type of thing. Um, so there was a sort of reluctance to to get into the whole computer space, and then there was also these. Um, I wouldn't say it's a political issue, but a, a, a very key issue where NSA has this charter that says NSA only does what NSA does to foreign adversaries, right. foreign nationals, and NSA very specifically doesn't do what NSA does to U.S. citizens. And, of course, when we were trying to do good guy, ethical, white hat hacking, whatever you wanted to call it, uh, against our own stuff, that that very quickly became a political legal issue of can we do that? And so we had to we had to navigate the waters of how do we do ethical hacking, you know, for the for the greater good, you right. know, trying to determine the security of systems by breaking into them and do it under the auspices of our NSA, but not violate. NSA's charter. Um, there's a very long story uh, involved in that, which is best told uh, over brown liquor. Um, but it is a story that I sometimes tell uh, at various conferences under the right circumstances. Um, the long and the short of it is, like many uh, many people that have grown up in the, in the, in the military and the in, in the DoD and, and getting this type of experience we saw the greener pastures and the, the more lucrative opportunity to go out in the private sector and uh, so I, I left NSA uh, 23 years ago and uh, went to work for a, a commercial organization that was setting up uh, you know computer security network security consulting type of operations doing the ethical hacking we didn't really call it red teaming back then we called it vulnerability and threat assessment yeah. but essentially it was we're going to break in and find all the holes and and tell you how to improve your security by letting the good good guys right. do it first very much modeling uh, you know some of the the things that we uh, inspired us were movies like war games or movies like sneakers and, and much more so probably sneakers because yeah. that was all about hiring a, a, a an expert firm to come right. in and, and and show you how bad you were. So did that for several years, uh, ended up working for a dot-com startup and uh, limped along that way for several years, always having a lot of good experiences in terms of the customers. But uh, organizationally, the, the vision of management was we need to produce a product because that's where you get the force multiplier and get the big payout, whereas we were just doing consulting and advisory work. Yep. But uh, uh, somewhere along the line, I, I ended up uh, – working for some people that I had known from the NSA days and previous employments. And I went to work for what at the time was a, a startup company uh, that was started by a bunch of NSA people called Trustwave. And uh, that got me into uh, credit card security, the payment card industry. So I, I went to work for Trustwave at the end of 2004, and they, they handed me this document called the PCI Data Security Standard. And they said, read this. This is what we're going to do. So that got me involved in PCI, and I ended up doing PCI for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, I, I, one of the people that I used to work with at NSA, someone that's, that you guys are familiar with, Ron Gula, yep. uh, you know, he obviously had gone to work and, and founded Tenable. And we'd always kept in touch and saw each other a couple times a year. And he finally came, approached me. It's been about six years ago now and said, hey, I finally got a spot for you in Tenable. Come come work for us and be our PCI expert and help us you know, market our products and make sure our products are fine-tuned to work in, right. in the PCI space. So 
I, I left consulting land. I, I became more of an advisor. Um, I think technically I was a product marketing manager when yeah. I started at Tenable. But one of the things that Ron asked me to do was, I want you to go out and start speaking at conferences. I want you to represent Tenable. You know, you've been in the business a long time. I want you to tell stories. So I started doing that, and that's been gradually uh, ramping up over the last uh, several years. And um, one of the people I met at Tenable was Paul Asadorian. And somewhere along the line, I found out that he was doing a webcast, podcast type of thing. And I found my way to his studio at some point and started you know, being yeah. on the show. And, of course, I'm still there. I'm one of the okay. hosts of Paul Security Weekly. And uh, so I did that for several years. Uh, my time at Tenable ended, and uh, I did some sort of freelance work for a while. And I finally ended up going because mostly because my wife wanted me to have a steady paycheck and benefits, yep. including healthcare. Um, I, I went back to work basically with the guys that I had, working, had been working with right before I left Tenable. Uh, I was with a, a, a team working PCI primarily. And uh, my old boss had left the company that where we worked and had started a security practice at a company called Online Business Systems. I don't know if the camera <laughs> can see that. Yep. And he basically was building a security practice at an IT services company. And, and you know, again, we've always kept in touch. And I finally came back to him and said, do you have a spot for me? So about a little over a year ago, I went back to work for them. So I'm back in PCI land. I back, I'm back doing advisory work, consulting work, which is really my passion. Uh, what I've enjoyed most over the years is being able to go out and, and meet different companies, meet right. different people, and teach them about security, explain them to security what security is all about. And uh, the crux is very often in PCI. Uh, and most companies that I've experienced that have to do PCI or any other regulatory compliance, again, like we talked about earlier, this this institutional knowledge either was never there in the first place right. or has been lost or just didn't transfer very well. Uh, I have I have found great success uh, personally and professionally in terms of being able to go into companies and kind of explain to them how this thing works and how it right. needs to work for them beyond what the words are on the page and beyond the mentality that, oh, well, we just have to do the bare minimum, check a box. Yeah, so I think that's it's really interesting because like how fast technology was basically adopted by the mainstream, you kind of lost, like you said in the early days, like everybody in the room back at the NSA with that safe, like everybody knew why it needed to be locked up. Like everybody touched it right. basically on a daily basis. And it was a bunch of specialized people. It wasn't everybody. Um, and then how technology became so ingrained in our daily lives. Nobody really thought about it, I would say, um, until like all these hacks started happening and being very public hacks mm. to where people actually realized what was what was actually happening to them. So like when the, uh, what was the, the credit, the credit agency that, uh, that got hacked, I think that was probably one of the first ones. Equifax. Equifax. I think that was probably one of the first ones where your average person realized how it could affect them. Right. Like seriously, they were, right. it made it so much easy, easier for like their social security number now to be leaked and things like that. And I think that's where it started to hit home. And so, Back before that kind of happened, everybody just kind of brush stroked and was like, oh, security, we have a guy right. that does the security, where now I think people are starting to finally take notice on how everything they do can impact the bigger organization and cause like serious issues. Right. And companies now topple over 
hacks like that happening and things like that. Right. And I think that's it's very interesting how it's finally coming full circle and, and now Apple is like super on the privacy bandwagon and they're making that their number one marketing strategy. Right. And I think it's great for a cybersecurity type mindset, but I still think we're like super far off because these these super large organizations have so many people and it's tough. And so we've kind of started at Cyberry, we, we kind of start now talking about this thing called security enablement mm-hmm. where it's like, how do we start to educate everybody on all of these things? And it doesn't have to be like a deep dive. Like we're just trying to like let everybody know these are the generally the best practices so that when they're making that game time decision, they err on the best side as opposed to the wrong side. Right. Um, and things don't actually kind of build up. Right. Yeah, it, it's... Um I, I certainly agree that it's a big problem, and I agree that uh, I agree on what what this, this the current state is, where there just isn't enough institutional knowledge about basic cybersecurity hygiene, if you yeah. will, um, and, and it's lost on too many companies. And, and I think you know, I don't know, chicken or egg, cart before the horse. I think our industry has helped to promulgate the, the bad yeah. uh, and it's 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 ironic that we're uh, and me having been in this business uh, 30 depending on how I think about it 37 38 years um, it, it, I, I chuckle very often when I hear people at a, giving a talk at a conference or I listen to you know somebody that we're interviewing on on security weekly and they're so excited because they've come to this realization about something and I'm like wow that's that's like sort of fundamental and we've known about that for 30 <laughs> years if not longer yeah but it's new to you so right. that's really exciting um, the I think where the industry struggles and has really contributed to the problem is sort of feeding into the mentality that, well, security is just something that uh, somebody else handles, somebody else takes care of. It's done for you so that you're just the average rank-and-file employee at a company. You don't have to worry about it. It's not in my job description. It's not in your job description. Why should I care about it? And ironically... Um, in all the vast majority of the companies that I've dealt with as an advisor or a consultant over the years, the worst offenders are typically the ones that hold the keys. Yes. The, the admins. Yeah. Um, they know what the rules are, but they got to get their job done. And so yeah. they, they routinely do all the bad things that they shouldn't be doing. Yes. And, and, um, it starts there, uh, it, but it certainly doesn't end there. But like PCI, for instance, and I'll, I'll, Usually when I say PCI at Security Weekly, we all have to drink because uh, I, <laughs> I say it that too, too often. But one of the requirements in PCI is to make sure you have a security awareness program for right. all of your employees in the company. And that's been productized and, 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 and basically boils down to, and we've all seen it, some 30-minute to 45-minute uh, training course, online yep. training course. You know, I think Cyberay to some degree had its origins or at least saw that and said we could do better. Yeah, and and that's part of that's part of where cyber is 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 yeah. coming in and trying to fix things or change right. things and 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 make things better. Um, 
but the but the notion that you know thirty minutes of what's a good password, what's a bad prep password, uh, or there's I, I've seen too many companies out there now that are focusing on like phishing attacks. Um, yes, you know, and and thinking, well, if we can just get people to not click on the link, right? I happen to go, I I got a <laughs> I got a phishing email yesterday. Yeah, you know my 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 work account, and it was from, you know, some weird looking online address and it said hey we've just set you up in the system we need you to click here to register i'm like mm, yeah no <laughs> yeah but and i and i forwarded it you know i followed the rules and right. forwarded it to our our it security group and and you know put it out on we have a slack channel for our employees i said hey be on the lookout i got right. one Others are probably going to get the same thing too, and, and a couple people responded, "Oh yeah, I saw that." Or yeah, that's that's a really good looking one, and it was very convincing because right. you know the link was OBS Global, that's our domain, but if you hovered over it, yep, you know it was all exposed as being a, a bad link. But there's more to it than just right. Don't click on the links. There's more to it than pick a good password. Um, and again, the, the, this fundamental making s s the notion of cybersecurity sort of part of the, I, I like to refer to it as part of the culture of the company. Right. And everybody needs to understand their role, no matter how big or small their role is in the business function of the company, what they do and what they don't do matters right. to, to, the, to the greater you know, goal or greater cause of protecting whatever it is that they're trying to protect. Right. I would I would also say that I I've experienced um, in some of my other companies that some of the the key security experts and stuff tend to silo themselves off and don't really let other people know what they're doing. I don't know if it's because job security or other things, but they they tend to make it seem like cybersecurity is this super tough thing that only they can do, and they're not about the knowledge sharing and things like that. Uh, I remember once a startup I was working at, we got acquired. Uh, we then had to send our software at the end of each development release through like a penetration test or a vulnerability assessment. And I, I'd get on the call with these guys as I was the I was the guy that basically installed it at all the customers. So I was the guy that knew basically the ins and outs of how it's installed, how it runs, how to break it, how to fix it. And I would get on these calls and they would they would talk about their their findings. And I remember the first couple times I got on the call, these guys got on and they're like, oh, well, we're just going to run a penetration test against it. And me coming from the startup where I was the guy also running the security assessments back in the day, I, I started like trying to dig deeper and ask like, oh, like, cool, like, what are you doing to test? Like, how are you? Because, you know, I'm trying to make it more secure. Like, I understand the security walls that we put in place. And so I was trying to figure out, are they trying to go behind that security wall and try to like actually figure out what's broken? Or are they just typing in an IP address to an automated scanner and hitting scan? Well, we can say it. They just run a Nessus scan. Correct. Well, they weren't running Nessus. Well, or some, that's a lie. They were some, running Nessus. Okay. Um, and or, I, I was, or, or the equivalent. Right. And I was kind of upset because I, I, I mean, we were from a modern enterprise software startup, and I was running a lot of the DevOps pipelines. And I was like, no, this is automatable. Like, when I tag a release, like, the Nessus scan should just kick off right. and then give me that report because that's exactly what you're going to do for me. Right. Um, and so they were very, they wouldn't tell me what software they were using. They were like, no, this is our department. Like, you need to get in line. The other departments submit theirs to us, and you're late this month. So, like, you're now at the back of the list. You can't release your software until we've passed it right. and things like that. And it was, it was super frustrating trying to, 
like get past those gates when it's, I knew what they were going to do. I could run the scan myself, but the way the institution was set up, that person was the gate checker for that software. And it kind of just screeched the whole release process to a halt, which is frustrating for developers because, you know, they're, they're working overtime to hit this date that we told the customer that it would be out. And now the security guy was like, no, I don't have time. It's going to get bumped. And that's a great example of how an organization was sort of following the script of what they're supposed to be doing, whether it was PCI or some other regulatory compliance standard. Somebody, some way, somehow was dictating, we need to have these processes in place. But there wasn't, from what you're describing, sort of the deeper understanding of what's a better way to do this that's more productive and more effective, especially more cost cost effective and and what can we do to to make sure that things are happening earlier and and and, and more thoroughly and and why not involve right. um you know you, you mentioned that you know a lot of a lot of times the security practitioners seem to pigeonhole themselves and i and i think it, the the reason why covers the gamut i i i think it's different for most people but there there is certainly um a train of thought within the industry that cybersecurity is somehow mysterious and there's an aura about it. And again, I think we 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 very often promote that, especially yeah. within the hacking community, where if you go to a hacker conference, the 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 people that are lauded as the heroes and the the Uber hackers, at least we used to call them Uber hackers. Now we call them rock stars. Um, they're talking about you know the latest. O-Day that they've they've discovered, or they'll drop one, and that that's cool. Or they'll talk about the cool hack that they've done, um, and that's sexy and that's cool. Yeah. They don't. And me being somebody that likes to come in and talk about, well, nothing's really changed. We haven't <laughs> learned, or we've lost the lessons that were you know uh, learned over hundreds of years, right. at least in the existence of this country and our military, and and the idea of keeping secrets. Um, nobody wants to hear that. They're like, oh, that's not fun and sexy. That's just yeah. old and boring. It's like, so I'm old and boring, but I still think the message is there that um, the fundamentals of security right. are, are they're not that terribly mysterious and they're not that ter- terribly difficult to understand. And they're most of the time they're pretty intuitive. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, but I think it's a combination of if you tell everybody that maybe my job goes away right. or... Uh, certainly within the vendor side of things, that doesn't help us sell our product. Right, 100%. You know? uh, so I've had many conversations with many different people where I've gotten into sort of what really needs to change, what really needs to happen, and and the, and the they'll agree with me, but they'll ultimately say, yeah, but there's no money in that. Yep. <laughs> so I, I actually have similar problems um, since I, I run all the infrastructure for us. Uh, I get a lot of like security questionnaires from customers. Sure. And, you know, a lot of it is they want you to check these boxes of like, do you have an intrusion detection system? Right. And it's it's tough for me because I understand like the question that somebody down the line is trying to like cover. Right. But for us, it's like, well, yes and no. Like it, in this modern architecture we run, you know, like in a traditional intrusion detection system isn't what you're thinking. Right. If you can give me the five things that you want the intrusion detection system to do, to do. Yep. I can tell you how we are protected from that across the board, across a totally right. different tool set. Right. Um, and it's tough because you, 
most of the time, the people that are giving us those questionnaires, like you don't understand, they don't understand. Um, it's, it's tough. Like, do you give the answer that like, you know, they're looking for, but like, you know, it's not the technical right answer. And if anybody on their security team dug deeper would be like, no, that's wrong. Right. But like in my heart, like, I feel like I'm answering the question to what they want to know based on their level of understanding. And that's, that's super tough for us is trying to like walk that line of, yes, we know you're secure, but if I tell you no on this check mark, you've now basically sent us down this black hole where we're never going to get approved right. because we don't, we don't meet that one little check. Right. And so I, I struggle with that a lot, especially as I start to like architecture systems and things like that. It's, you know, what was the, uh, there's a, back at our old company, they wanted us to, I forget there's uh what's the level of encryption um that's standard across DOD. Uh yeah, I've been out of the DOD a long time. <laughs> anyways, there's like the the standard level of encryption, uh, but it's basically a less encryption standard than we were using. Right. And so to sell anything to the government, you had to support I can't think of it, it's gonna come the to lesser me. encryption. And and it was like, well, no, we we actually use a, a much stricter thing with like better keys and better ciphers and right. they were like sorry like you have to meet this right it's not like it's a standard and a baseline as long as you prove you're over no and what was tough for us was we used a, a lot of open source projects um and they didn't support it and it was like well we can never fully support this unless we basically downgrade the security and things like that and they were like yes please downgrade the security it was basically what it came out to and it right. was it was it was super tough trying to kind of because that box has a particular size and shape, yep. and they're accustomed to that particular peg being the thing that fills it. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of this meme I saw the other day where it's a father watching his, uh, I think his little daughter put the block in, and couldn't figure out how to put the star in any of the holes. So she just picks up the lid and <laughs> drops it in under the lid and puts the lid back on. Problem I was like, solved. Oh, yeah, I was like, <laughs> if only I had something like that where I could just, you know, nope, yep. But so. that's but that's the essence of the hacker mentality, right. and and you know the reason I was waffling on you know how long have I been in the business? As I look back on my life, I can I, I had several part time jobs before I had that official DoD job in, in my college years, and one of my uh, first jobs that was more or less a real job um, was uh, working part time to try to put myself through school at working for a, a state agency that was doing default loan collections and actually trying to prevent people from defaulting on their loans because they were guaranteed by the government, right. the state. So they would rather get people to pay and, and not have to pay out to whoever the, right. you know, they were the underwriters for student loans. And, um, I was learning as I look back on it now, cause I had our, our my tool was a phone. And I had a, a I had a mainframe terminal and access to this huge database that had all the records of all the people, and I would get a list of people to call every time I went to work, and I'd get through as many as I could. But my my tool was a telephone, and we had rules. We you know back, you know this is ancient history now, but back in those days, you could call the operator and ask the operator, you know, what's the phone number for a particular address. We were allowed to call uh, a certain number of times a month. We could submit. And, and find out the phone numbers of like neighboring houses around a particular address. So we could call neighbors and say, hey, I'm trying to get in touch with you know Joe next door. Apparently their phone's out. Would you mind running over and knocking <laughs> on their door? So there's this whole 
looking back on it, social engineering exercise of trying to figure out yes. how to get, you know, get to the people, to get them on the phone to talk to them and try to get them to pay so they wouldn't default. That was the whole essence of it. But I was also on a mainframe terminal with access to these huge records. And, you know, I would spend my idle time where can I go? How far yep. can I get? Can I look up my brother? Can I look up all my professors? Oh, look, this one professor at my school has got a defaulted loan. Yep. Shame on them. Uh, you know, Stuff that I shouldn't have been looking at, but there weren't necessarily the controls in place to prevent me from getting there. Right. So if I, if I take that kind of stuff into account, that's when I start saying, you know, my, my career as a hacker goes back 37, 38 years. But uh, I think the you know, getting back to sort of how we've 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 failed uh, to try to translate cybersecurity into the, into the into the commercial world or into society, it goes all the way back to the very beginning, where the idea was everybody's going to start connecting to the internet. Oh, but we need to secure, especially from a company or organization perspective. So, what was the first thing that was invented? The firewall, and the firewall, I think, in many ways, set in motion this idea that security is something that's taken care of for us. We don't have yep. to think about it. And the idea of fi uh, the firewall was we need to have a barrier between the bad, evil internet, where anything is out there that could be attacking us, and our safe interior corporate, you know, network environment where. God knows what goes on. And yep. Of course, in the early days, we were trying to uh, explain to people, no, you need to do stuff on the inside as well to secure things. Yes. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on, on the inside. And if your you know, security is largely lying, relying on a single point of failure, can somebody get past the firewall or yep. not? You're not really buying much of anything, but there's certainly this nice illusion of we're behind the firewall. Which is crazy because that still exists. Right, like borderless networks are still not a like common practice that a lot of companies think about right. and try to protect. Like they still are. But some of the new marketing pitches, if you will, the the, yes. the buzz, the uh, buzzwords now, the buzzwords, and the things that are getting people all excited are things like insider threat. Like that's something new, yes. but that's one of the big buzzwords. It was my last with, startup was at, a, at RSA threat. this past year. That was one of the big things. And I again, I <laughs> chuckle every time I see a company, and I, I deal with lots of companies. Uh, you know. Because I, I get bombarded because I'm a media person with all sorts of, you know, I'm getting it now, getting ready to go to Black Hat. I've got, you know, a dozen emails a day. Hey, do you have time to talk to our expert on this? And I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea who you're talking to. Um, but, you know, very often they're like, whoa, insider threat's a big new thing. You know, we've got to do something about it or this idea of borderless security or zero trust security. Right. There's all sorts of new buzzwords. Yep. But if you peel off the, 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 the fluff around it and, the, and the, the razzle dazzle and the light, flashy, blinky lights, it, it still boils back down to basic yep. security hygiene that you and I coming from a DOD background, it was something that was just built into our right. DNA. It was something you did and you and you knew how to do. And and the worst irony I see uh, nowadays is too often now the DOD itself is turning to private industry to try to get that knowledge. I mean, not only has it been lost, it's been totally lost. Yep. And the and the and the the institutional knowledge seems to have vanished. I guess it's because we all left and went out into the private sector. Well and it's also crazy because now the contractors have the seat in that organization 
and they do the work. It's not like that contractor is training the other people, like the other soldiers, the active duty people, that contractor's doing all the work. Right. And so those soldiers say in like the signal corps in the army, the guys that run all the networks, it's contractors that have that specialized knowledge in those certs. And it's not the soldiers that are assigned, you know, the 17, 18, 19 year old guy who would be perfect to learn that up because it's like, oh, hey, we'll just, he'll progress through his career and he'll know these things. And by the time he gets up to the top, he'll know and understand like what he did at that base level. And it's like, no, now he's responsible for plugging in switches. Like that's what we've relegated his role right. to. And, right. and so and then it just compounds and compounds. And then you need a higher paid contractor to be in charge of more contractors. And so, but yeah. So it's ugly. It is. Um, but yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, insider threat. Like that was our, our last startup, Red Owl Analytics, um, which was interesting. Um, it's basically sucking in all the available data and trying to do trends and things like right. that, which was like a very interesting way of you know thinking about security. It's like, yep, nope, there is no security anywhere. We just take all the data and just look for anomalies and trends across all these points. Very, very hard to do in practical terms when you talk about the size and scale of data. Right. Um, a lot of our companies were uh, customers were like very large banks where they have the uh, SEC rules where so much of the communication has to be reviewed and things like that. And right. so when you're talking about, you know, a couple hundred thousand person organizations, the amount of data that they generate is crazy. Right. And then how do you how do you do the analysis and all that kind of analysis and stuff like that? With a reasonable amount of compute power, because you know you're not a fancy, you're not the new firewall. You know right. you can't you can't charge a firewall's price. You know the firewall's way better than yours. Right. Um, and then so how do you start to provision hardware that can do the analysis in real time? You know because everybody's used Facebook. When I click on a link, like I instantly get all those person's photos and they've just loaded. Like I want I want your software to work just like that. Right. And right. So those were those were fun days. So. Uh, I have this uh, core belief, and I, I think I'm in the minority. But when I talk to people, they, you know, they usually say, "Yeah, that makes sense." And and my my firm belief is that to really begin to grasp and understand cybersecurity, uh, organizations and individuals need to understand that to understand security. You, it's a conversation to have before you start talking about technology. Yes, but so 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 much of this industry is technology driven. Um, well, it's easy to change technology. It's easy to change, and we assume that new technology comes with all the bells and whistles and security built into it. Right. So, you know, we as consumers or users of the technology, we think, oh, we're good because surely somebody has looked at it, yeah. or. Uh, it's good because it's been outsourced to a third party, yeah. and, and you know it's a hosted environment, it's a cloud environment, it's a this, it's a that. Somebody somewhere is doing. Well, I mean, it, security it went through the firewall, so this email must be good, right? Yeah, but uh, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do, uh, you know, with what with 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 what little time I have left <laughs> in terms of having the attention of, of uh, a public audience, is, is to try to educate and get people to think more about what it is or think differently about what this thing is that we're calling cybersecurity. And I base it on, um, you know, things, that, the, the way that I learned about security back in the DOD, back at NSA, which is based on uh, what we used to call the risk equation. And uh, there's lots of risk equations out there. If you Google it, you get all sorts of really comp complicated formulas and people really try to dig into coming up with some sort of measure 
to how, you know, how do we know we're secure? How do we know we're doing things well? Uh, most people, and you'll hear these terms bandied about, especially in, in, in the vendor pitches and all the marketing, but the, the basic risk, risk equation, and I try to simplify and boil, boil things down to just sort of a basic understanding. Risk is a function of vulnerabilities that exist and threats and then what we used to call in the DOD countermeasures. And so, you know, whatever your risk is, is a, is a result using some pick your choice of mathematical formulas, the, the presence of vulnerabilities and the presence of threats and what you do to counter them, either the threats or the vulnerabilities. Right. And that gives you the risk, you know, and when you explain that at a high level, most people can track. Yeah. Where I have fun uh, is I go to, uh, especially if it's a vendor vendor event where there's a, a vendor floor, I'll go up to, and I try not to get to just the marketing people. I try to find the SEs or the people that are more technical in the booth. And if they're advertising, they've got some sort of threat solution, I'll just simply ask them, what is a threat? And watch them fumble with trying oh, yeah. to define it. Or what is a vulnerability? And watch them fumble trying to define it. Lately, what I've been doing uh, is is sort of cutting to the chase and saying, what is this thing called security? I mean, we are all yeah. security professionals, but what is it? I put it out on, I, I put that question out uh, a couple months ago on Twitter. And uh, it was it was to a specific individual who I've asked a couple times. And this is somebody that's... Uh, very well known in the industry and and very much respected and i respect him uh, we have mutual respect and i had asked him in public because we were both at a conference several months ago what is security and he had responded i'm not prepared to answer that question yeah so i saw him a couple months later and i asked him the question again and he responded but i didn't like his response so then i went to the twitter and put the question out there the responses were fascinating oh yeah and i sort of re I, I asked the same question again in a slightly different way just about a month ago. It's probably been a month now. And, um, you know, just basically put the question out there, what is security? And the, the, the amount of responses, especially ones that were like, well, it's simple. It's this, 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 and this. And, you know, the point of what I was asking was to point out that there's no universal agreement right. on the definitions. And everybody that would respond and say, I know the definition, it's this – underscored the fact that nobody agrees on what the right. definitions are. <laughs> so uh, I, I give a talk. Uh, I'll be giving it uh, in the future, uh, trying to think of what conference. Oh, uh, I'll be out at, um, at DEF CON, and I'll be speaking at the Packet Hacking Village, the Wall of Sheep. It's sort of, so it's yep. a little sub-conference within a conference, and I'm yep. giving a talk that's sort of based on this concept of rethinking security, you know, and my premise is basically, it seems to me like 95% of this industry, security industry, is focused on vulnerabilities. Yes. And, you know, whether it's vulnerability detection, whether it's vulnerability prevention, whether it's, it's you know, teaching developers or whomever not to put vulnerable code out, whatever the conversation is, hardening systems, keeping up with patching, all the different tools that detect and protect so much emphasis is on vulnerabilities. My question is, um, with the emphasis on vulnerabilities and with the and with vulnerability being one component or one variable within this thing that we call the risk equation, 
And there's something else in the risk equation. I mentioned countermeasures, but let's say security is a, you know, a, a synonym for countermeasures. If that's another element, if you know, any kind of mathematical equation, when you have one variable that's labeled something and you have another variable that's labeled something, so in this case, vulnerability is something, but security is something else. If vulnerabilities and everything we're doing with vulnerabilities, by definition, based on the risk equation, is not security, then what then is security? Yeah. And I suggest uh, all the things that we're doing with vulnerabilities, which is seemingly 95% of this industry, what if that's not security at all? What if that's just our job? If we're a developer, we should know to put out secure code that right. that's, doesn't have all the OWASP top 10 whatever vulnerabilities built into it. If, as users, we should know how to... Yeah, it should be like English grammar rules. Like It should right, just be like, right. these are the rules that or govern... Or IT administrators yeah. and administrating our servers and systems and desktops and whatever these days. What if keeping them secure and patched and, and, and up to date, that isn't security at all. That's just... Yeah, that's your normal part job. Part of the job. Function. That's yeah, table that's, stakes. Yeah. And so if you take all of that away and say that's all that stuff that we talk about and all the focus of that isn't security, what's left and yeah. what is security? And I don't yeah. have a specific, I have an idea, but I don't have a specific answer. Yeah. And my goal is just simply to get people to pause and say, hmm, yeah, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, because you would also have to think that there's probably a sliding window along that as well. Like when does it leave being security then and move over to just your job function? Like is it a major breach that now everybody is like, oh, this is a normal thing and... Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. You know, you know, people, people, the general public didn't seem to notice that yeah. cybersecurity is a thing until the Equifax breach, yeah. which was how many years ago at this point? Three years ago, yeah. maybe. Well, I mean, the DoD um, people realized it after the OPM breach, right? And, and there was major breaches before <laughs> oh, yes. that. Uh, I mean, my my early days of PCI, I happened to work for a, a practice that was involved in in helping several merchants and in one case a service provider that were were victims of at the time the biggest breaches credit card breaches that had happened this was back in the 2006 7 8 okay, era yeah, yeah. Uh, turned out it was the alberto alberto gonzalez uh hacking rings you know they figured out ways of harvesting millions and tens of millions of was credit this the cards. target one no no this okay. is this is years Pre, before okay, target yeah, yeah. this is um TJ Maxx. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, yeah. Hannaford, uh, the the uh, service provider was Heartland Payment Systems. Mm. They, they were, at the time, rather famously breached, all supposedly PCI compliant, and that caused all sorts of disruptions. But yeah. I happened to be part of the practice. We weren't doing the forensics. We were the, the, the PCI assessors, QSAs, qualified security assessors, that came in and said, okay, we got to get you back in compliance, we got to get you following the security right. standards. And in, in invariably, uh, they were checking boxes, all these different organizations, not really knowing what they were checking or not. And they just didn't have that logical step back looking at the right. big picture. How does it all work together? And, and they, you know, they missed some things, let's say. So a lot of, the, a lot of the getting them back in, in, into a secure state or a compliant state had to do with educating them on what what it all meant in the first place right. and, and how it all worked together. And, and, and again, that goes back to that early lesson that I learned of why does it bother? You know, why bother with locking a safe if it's 
five levels deep yep. in the security program because it matters because right. any and and most of the breaches uh, the ones that you've cited that are more recent if you it, to the degree that you get to understand what really happened invariably there is no single point of failure there's a cascade of bad right. habits not yep. following processes people trying to do the right thing to get their job done knowingly circumventing the security right. precautions and rules that are in place but they felt like they had to because the boss needs them to do right. this type of thing. They're, invariably, it's, it's this whole cascade of failures. Uh, when the target breach happened, uh, I was working at Tenable, and, and my boss asked me to respond to something that somebody from Gartner had written about the target breach uh, that had very peripheral knowledge of PCI. And, you know, so they were drawing a lot of wrong conclusions. So I went point by point, line by line through this is what happened. And PCI has 12 major requirements. And, and just based on what I was seeing in, in the media, I could pick off, uh, I'm making it up now, I don't remember the exact number, but you know, seven or eight of the 12 major requirements were clearly not being met just based on what was going on. And the irony uh, to me was within the PCI world, Target had a, actually a very good reputation for having a large security practice. They invested in security, they invested in the technology, they had people, you know, so they supposedly were doing the right things right. and they had the, you know, they had the right approach to it, but they were fundamentally missing on so many fronts because of this lack of institutional knowledge, this, this, the stove piping or siloing of, you know, yep. certain people are in charge or they threw a lot of technology out there and said, okay, we've got the technology there. We're good. Yeah. Not understanding, uh, what's, what all's involved with, you know, you can use technology, but, you got to be able to use it well right. and you got to know what it's telling you type of thing. You got to have yeah. eyes on it, interpreting the out the outputs and things like that. Yeah. What's interesting about the, the safe thing. I just drew this real random conclusion. It's, it's why in the military, like you make your bed every day. Right. It's cause it's these like little steps that you want that just kind of like happen. And I think that's the tough part is like trying to get like all these little cybersecurity steps. They just need to be like rote. Like it just needs to be like muscle memory. Thing. Yeah, it just needs to be your job, right? It like needs that's, to be part of the culture yeah. and it's stuff that you do and you don't even think about. Right, because that's what like as those start to break down, like that's how you get to like the catastrophic failures and things like that. Um, it was, I mean, just like that, that TV show, uh, that just aired Chernobyl and stuff. It's mm -hmm. like these like little things that seemed very small at the time, like as they start to add up, start to cause these like crazy, crazy things. Um, so let's talk about your book real quick. Sure. Uh, your contributor on uh tribe of hackers. Uh, how did that, how did, how did that kind of work? How'd that come about? Well, the, uh, the person that, uh, is the brainchild behind the book tribe of hackers, a gentleman named Marcus Carey. Uh, he's also an ex-NSA guy. I met him several years ago in the conference circuit, and we found out we were both NSA crippies, and so we kind of bonded over that. Um, he had read, written, a, he had read a book that was on another topic, but it was Tribe of Something, and he he read the book and said, "This is a pretty good concept because the concept is essentially in what this book is." He he put together a questionnaire. 
And he sent it out to people that he knew within the industry that he felt like, I don't know exactly how he chose people, put that out there, but uh, people that are recognized and successful and, and are thought of as leaders in the, in the cybersecurity space. I don't know why I got included. Other we're, <laughs> we're NSA crippies. Um, but he put out the questionnaire to these folks and, and, and said, please respond to these questions. And the questions are, you know, what's your earliest lesson that you learn? What's your biggest success? What's your biggest failure? What's your favorite hacker movie? What's your favorite hacker book? If you had it all to do over again, what would you change? Stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it sort of covers a gamut of not just the professional, strictly the cybersecurity, but, you know, who are you as a person? What, yeah. what makes you who you are? What, what got you to where you are today? Yeah. It's not just like cre credentials and things like that. It's, right. it's kind of like what shaped you. Experiences. Right. Yeah. What shaped you? Um, and uh, so 70 respondents, Marcus being one of them, uh, became the book. So there's 70 nice. people in the book. Uh, each has their own chapter, as it were, and everybody is is responding to the same questions. So what's most interesting to me about the book is a couple things. One is when I got the book and I saw the list of everybody in it, and these are the best hackers in the world, I hadn't heard of a lot of them. Uh, and I, I think I know a lot of people. I, I at least get to meet a lot of people because right. I'm out there a lot. Um, so there's a lot of diversity because there's a lot of people making a difference, but they're not all like at the hacker conferences right. or they're not all at Black Hat and RSA type of thing. They're doing things in their their little niche, whatever that is. Um, there's also diversity in terms of, you know, there's a lot of talk these days in the industry about being more inclusive of women, for yeah. example. So there's a lot of women, people of color, people of other ethnicities. So there's a lot of cool, what I think is really cool diversity in the book in terms of uh, the spectrum of people that he involved, um, not just the, the typical one silo of people. Right. And then what's most fascinating is to, is to read through the book and see how all these different people coming at the problem from different yeah. approaches or, or different backgrounds or experiences, how they respond to some of the, some of the bigger questions right. like what's wrong with the industry, what's right with the industry type of things, and seeing sort of the commonality in the responses. Um, I think that's what's cool about the nice. book. And, and the book has been fairly po much more popular than Marcus expected um, to the point where he is now working on a series of books. I don't know how many he's got right. in his brain, but I know that the next one that they're planning on putting out is a Tribe of Hackers book that's focused on red teaming. And so there's a questionnaire oh, cool. that's focused on red teaming. Nice. And uh, I... I was asked to be a part of that. I don't know if I'll make the final cut or not, but I got I got the questionnaire and I, I filled out the responses. And they're also apparently putting out a, a, a second edition of the, the original Tribe of Hackers book with an actual publisher. So oh, this was cool. self-published initially, um, but they're, they're going to come out with a more real permanent <laughs> edition. Yeah. Um, all I know was I had to sign a release form because our, the photos in the book, because it's a real publishing house, they had to have a release from ah, the photographer yes. for the photos that were being used in the book. So yeah. I, that's how I know that there's a copy, of the, copy yeah. of the book. Yeah, they had to follow the rules, and they are following the rules, which is yeah. an important security lesson. 
So that's the book, uh, Tribe of Hackers. Uh, it's available. You can go to tribeofhackers.com and find it. Or if you go to Amazon, it's for sale on Amazon. And all the proceeds go to charities, at least in this first round. It's on the back of the book, uh, something called Bunker Labs, the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, Rainforest Partnership, and Startup Kids Club. So it's it, from, for all of us involved in it, it's a way to give back to the community. Yeah, nice. It seems like a it seems like a great book for anybody that's like just starting or been in the industry, because especially as you're starting out and you're kind of wondering like, are you doing the right things? You're doing you know the right steps to kind of do it. Um, the book shows that you know there's tons of people coming from all different backgrounds, all right. different ways trying to to do their own thing. And there's no just one cookie cutter like you go to college, you major in this, and then you go to the NSA, and then you come out of the NSA. There's definitely like not one specific right. career path to follow. Yeah. And and you know, people my age, you know, I get asked all the time, how'd you get into the business? And it's like, well, I just kind of been here from the beginning, just yeah. kind of <laughs> fell into it type of thing. Yeah. And it's hard to fall into something that's, you know, we're still relatively young, but we're old as an industry, yeah. you know, 25, 30 years, however you however you want to count it. Um, the questionnaire for the the red teaming book uh, was interesting because a couple of the questions were along the lines of how did you get into it? How would you recommend getting into this? What right. should you do to prepare yourself? Some of the classic questions like, you know, do you go the education route or the training route or the certification route and what are the pros and cons? And I get those types of questions a lot when I'm yeah. out meeting people at conferences. And I don't really have a good answer <laughs> other than, uh, I, I, you know, to be a hacker, whether it's this book or the red teaming book, I, I, I am convinced more and more that hacking is something that you have innately in you that sort of, uh, the desire to learn, the desire to figure things out, to, yeah. you know, how things work, the, you know, just being inquisitive, not accepting what's put before you trying to figure out different ways of right. doing things like the meme you mentioned with the little girl, <laughs> you know, oh, I figured out a way to solve the problem. Yeah. Um, I'm old enough to have watched the original Star Trek series on TV on a black and white set. And, and, uh, you know, later on it became movies. And, right. and I, I often quote the, the second Star Trek movie, which is the wrath of Khan, where in that movie, uh, it's sort of running through the whole movie is Captain Kirk when he was at the academy as a student. He was the only one to ever beat the uh, one test that they were given called the Kobayashi Maru. Right. And the Kobayashi Maru test is designed to see how you would operate in a no-win situation. Yeah. So it's you know set up on a holodeck, and it's this whole wargaming exercise where the ship that you're cap, you know, you're you're the captain of is surrounded by the enemy and you're about to get blown up and, and destroyed. What are you, what are you going to do with it? And so there's not really a win scenario. It's more testing, you know, your mental faculties. How do you respond under pressure? That right. type of thing. But captain Kirk beat it somehow. And at the end of the movie, hopefully everybody's seen it by now. <laughs> um, at the end of the movie, it's revealed that the way he beat it was he broke into the computer and hacked it essentially, yeah. and changed the program and and put in a, a a scenario where you could he could actually win the battle. Yeah. So did he really beat it the test, right. or well, did he really I mean, beat the test? Yeah, he hacked it. Yep. Um, you know, it, I I talk to a lot of people that they see the red teaming and the pen testing, and and that's the cool and sexy because that's what's presented from right. the front of most, so many conferences. 
but there's so much more to this industry than oh, that, yeah. just that one thing. And if you talk to a lot of pen testers, a lot of them aren't really happy with what they're doing. <laughs> they, yeah. they think it's kind of boring. It's, it's, uh, it's not the way it's presented where here's the result. It doesn't show, right. the, it doesn't show you the six months and the, like all the dead ends, the guy went right, down and right. things. Cause a lot of these ones, especially for more modern and zero days and stuff, like there isn't like a tool that's built to, to do this test and automate the scripting and right. to run all this thing. Like, yeah, you can run your scripts to like find the open holes that are already there, but like, that's not the, that's the, ones, not, the one that's big and sexy is the one where you probably did some crazy stuff for months, pulling your hair out right. and finally got to it, you know? And so, yeah, so I agree. And, and I, what I try to explain to people is, uh, you know, find, you know, when they're asking what's, what's my career path, how right. should I focus? I say, expose yourself to as much as you can within this business because there's so many elements to it and look for the thing that you're either good at or you seem to have uh, some aptitude for but more importantly find the thing that you enjoy right and if you can find something that you just oh this is really cool i really like it pursue that whether right. it happens to be a red team position or whether it's a researcher or whether it's a developer whatever it is if you if you enjoy it and you feel like you have fun at it and that's going to make you better at it. And right. that's going to give you the ultimate satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. You won't get upset an hour in, you'll right. spend eight hours and time will just fly because you're just having fun digging yep. to steal a quote from Nick Offerman. You just gotta, you gotta paddle your own canoe, you know, and find your own, your own way. Like there's not a, there's not like a cookie cutter, like, Oh, you want to, you want to do this. You might, you know, go to college and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you might find that's the most I've known, I've known too many people that think, oh, I want to get into computers and technology because they grew up playing games, yep. computer games. So they think they're really into computers. And uh, they get to college and they start doing program and they're like, oh, this sucks. This is I don't terrible. really like it. And, I'm yeah. like, and then they're like, what do I do now? Um, find, find what it is that you enjoy. Find out what it is. That you, hopefully what you enjoy doing is what you're good at doing right. or vice versa. And, and that's the ultimate career path is what gives you satisfaction and makes you feel like you've done something good at the end of the day. I like to tell people in terms of hackers, uh, I know a lot of hackers that aren't in this book. I know a lot of hackers that most people don't know are hackers. Right. But to me, the best hackers in the world, nobody knows who they are. Yeah. Well, on that, we can uh, we can end it. I appreciate you coming in today, Jeff, and chatting with us. It's yeah, fun. it's been fun. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Thanks. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry Podcast, and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.